Welcome back, Crimeaholics. It's your host, Holly, and I'm back with another Missing Monday for us today. This case has been suggested so many times for me to cover, and it's one that is truly baffling, to say the least. I want to encourage everyone to make sure that you're a part of our Facebook group because I feel like a lot of people are going to have some serious opinions on this case. I look forward to discussing it with everyone and hearing your thoughts on what happened. So make sure you find the group on Facebook by searching Crimeaholics Podcast Discussion Group. For those who are new to the podcast, welcome. Missing Mondays is a segment that was created to help keep missing persons' name and information in the media the best we can and to hopefully help aid in their return home. 90,000 people are missing in the U.S. at any given time, and while some are found alive or deceased, the majority are still missing today. On today's Missing Mondays episode, I will be sharing the information on the disappearance of Michael Chambers. Michael Glenn Chambers was born on November 27, 1946, in a small town called Italy, Texas. Growing up, he had dreamed of becoming a firefighter, and at the age of 25, he made that dream become a reality when he began working at the Dallas Fire Department. Now, this job quickly became a major passion for him, and it was literally the perfect fit because Michael always loved to help others. He was the type of guy that would stop whatever he was doing to help someone else, and everyone who he ever crossed paths with absolutely loved him. In interviews I watched with his daughter and son-in-law, both recall how proud Michael was of his work he did as a firefighter, and that growing up, his daughter would see her dad in the newspaper for various different things that he did to help people in the community, including a time when he delivered a baby on an overpass because the mother couldn't make it to the hospital in time. During his career, Michael married a woman named Vicky, and then the two of them had their two daughters, Susie and Sherry. But the marriage didn't work out, and after just a few short years of marriage, Vicky and Michael got a divorce. After the divorce, he just focused on his career and being an amazing father to his two children. Michael, at some point in his career, became a driver engineer, which in the firefighter world, according to FireRescue1.com, means that he was the driver of the fire trucks, and he was also responsible for maintaining and operating the fire pump and the aerial ladder. And this position is a very important one, as you can imagine, and it's also a very technical position that comes with a lot of responsibility. But with all of Michael's outstanding work, he succeeded at achieving such a position and did an amazing job at doing so. When Michael was 33 years old, he met and married a 23-year-old woman named Rebecca in 1980. Becca and Michael wanted to grow their family, but instead of having children of their own, they decided to adopt. They adopted their first child, John, and then four years later, they adopted another baby boy named Justin. 
From everything I had learned about Michael in various documentaries and interviews, he was said to be an incredible husband. He completely spoiled and doted on his wife, Becca. He held the door open for her, fixed her breakfast. Anything she needed, he took care of for her. She was literally the queen in his world. He was also the most amazing father and papa, as his grandchildren called him. Michael had four children, nine grandchildren, and six great-grandchildren. So they had a full house on the holidays, and Michael was the papa all the kids loved to be around. He wrestled with the kids, he danced with them, whatever they wanted to do, he was there to do it with them. Looking at all of the pictures I saw of Michael, he looked like the best family man, being the life of the family gatherings. He truly looks like the backbone and foundation of that family. His son-in-law said in the disappeared episode on him that he would do anything for his family and give anything to them. Michael's granddaughter Madeline said that Papa was always there at any event that she wanted him to be at, and he was there rooting her on, being supportive, and was just a proud grandfather. He was always there for her and everyone else in the family, no matter what. In 2008, after 36 years of service as a Dallas firefighter, Michael finally decided to hang it up and retire just before his 62nd birthday. At this point in time, Becca and Michael lived in Quinlan, Texas, where they bought a house on 10 acres of property that had a detached shop where he could tinker on cars, which was a huge hobby of his. Now, Quinlan, Texas is a small rural city and has less than 2,000 people living there. This area is also about 57 minutes east of Dallas, Texas. While living in Quinlan, Michael made lots of friends and he joined a car club known as the Texas Most Wanted. As I said, tinkering on cars was a hobby of Michael's, and he was extremely passionate about working on classic cars, and he did so often with his son-in-law, David. Michael and his son-in-law spent a lot of time together working on classic cars and then taking them out to various different car shows and to the car club. Aside from his passion for classic cars, Michael was very devoted to church and was even in a gospel band called the Joint Heirs Quartet, where he sang with a group of other men in front of the church. Not only did this group sing at churches, but they also would travel to various different nursing homes to sing for entertainment for the residents. Michael was just this positive light in everyone's life and was very well known within his small community. And if I'm not painting a picture good enough of how adorable and sweet Michael is, I will for sure have pictures posted so you can see that he looks like the sweetest papa ever. He truly seems like the father or grandfather that people dream to have. On March 10th, 2017, which was a Friday, Michael says goodbye to Becca as she heads out the door that day for work. He then proceeds to get ready for his own day. From what his family knew, on that day, Michael's only plans were to go out into the back of his property to cut some firewood and continue to tinker in his multi-car workshop. 
And not only that, but Michael had plans for the following day to watch his grandson play soccer that he was really looking forward to. At 8 a.m., Becca and Michael spoke briefly on the phone for just a few minutes, and during this conversation, she had asked Michael to go to the Walmart and pick her up some mascara. Just after 11 a.m., Michael is seen on the Walmart security cameras making a purchase of her mascara and a few other items he needed to pick up. On the footage, you can see that Michael is alone during his shopping trip, and when he leaves the store and gets into his pickup truck, nobody's with him there either. Nothing seems out of the ordinary, and he seems in good spirits and like his normal self. When his pickup truck pulled out of the Walmart parking lot, it did not appear that anyone followed him out. Later during a search of the home, all of the items that Michael purchased was found inside the home and the receipt from the purchase was found in the bathroom trash. So he for sure made it back to his house and had gone inside the home before whatever happened occurred. Around 3 p.m., the neighbor arrived home and spent the afternoon working in their yard and recalled never seeing anything out of the ordinary. And from where they live, they could easily see the front of the chamber's property and would have witnessed something strange or heard something if there was a scuffle. But they heard and saw nothing from 3 p.m. and after. Around 6.30 p.m., Becca arrived back home from work, and prior to coming home, she had sent a text to Michael about 45 minutes earlier saying that she was on her way, but she did not get a text back from him. Now, Michael was the type of husband who would greet his wife when she would get home. He would watch for her to pull into the driveway, meet her outside, and help her carry in her belongings. On this Friday night, however, he did not. When she arrived at home, she noticed that Michael's truck was in the driveway, but there was no lights on inside of the home. She went up to the house and found that it was locked, so she unlocked it and went inside the home. Once inside, she started calling out for Michael, but got no reply. So she decided to call his cell phone to see where he was, but the call went straight to voicemail. From there, she began reaching out to family to ask if anyone knew where Michael was, and Michael's daughter recalls that Becca sounded anxious on the phone. When none of the family had seen or heard from him, Becca went to the neighbor's house to ask him to help her look for Michael. The neighbors and Becca went towards the back of the property to see if maybe Michael was still back there working on chopping firewood, but he wasn't there either. This is when Becca decided to check Michael's workshop to see if maybe he was in there working on cars, which I just want to pause for a second and say that I do find this odd that Becca didn't go there first. If he wasn't in the house, Michael was typically in the workshop and she knew that he had plans on being in there that day. So why wasn't her first instinct to go in there before calling family? If it were myself, I'd check the garage or workshop for my husband before ever causing the family to panic or even going to my neighbors for assistance. That whole situation just seems slightly odd, and perhaps Becca's reasoning for not checking there first was because typically when Michael worked on cars in there, he would have the big garage bay door open, and when she arrived home, that door was closed. 
But either way, she and the neighbor go up to the workshop and she found that the door was locked. Becca used her key to open the door thinking that maybe Michael had accidentally locked the door behind him and that he was inside. Once inside, they spotted Michael's wallet, the Dallas Fire Department hat he always wore, and his keys sitting on the counter. So that was proof that he had been inside the workshop recently. Becca and the neighbors went further into the garage to see if they could find him deeper inside, and when she rounds the side of one of the classic cars parked in there, she spots something unusual. Becca spotted drops of blood that were on the concrete floor. The neighbor Becca had helping her search the property was actually a retired police chief, and this discovery had him on edge. So he immediately calls 911 at 6.55 p.m. Now I want to take a second and talk about this blood that was found. It is super interesting and has caused so many people to have a lot of questions and even more speculation. And I will, of course, have pictures of this on our Facebook group so you can check it out for yourself. So once again, make sure you join. But this blood is like a trail of perfectly dropped circles of blood that leads to a gathering of a ton of drops of blood, which creates almost like a small pool of blood. But again, I can't say it's a pool of blood because there are just a collection of a bunch of blood drops. So almost as if someone stood there and repeatedly dropped it in this area. When you see the picture, I think you'll get what I mean when I say it's not an actual pool of blood. But this blood appeared to be very bright red and it was very obvious that it was pretty fresh. When police arrived on scene, they also found that there was a bloodied dowel rod that was standing up against a nearby wall, which if you're not sure what a dowel rod is, it's a thicker wooden stick essentially and often used in furniture making amongst other things. So it appears that either Michael was hit with this dowel rod or he hit someone else. I watched an interview with private investigator Philip Klein with Lord and Arts on YouTube, and I will link that YouTube in the sources of this episode. But in this interview, Philip Klein describes how he believes that these blood drops were created when Michael was being carried in what he called a dog walk. Now, a dog walk, as he explained it, is when two people carry someone with one person having their hands up underneath somebody's shoulders and the other person carrying the feet. The person who is being carried, in this instance, Michael, has their head flipped backwards and it's swaying side to side, likely due to them being unconscious or dead. And Philip Klein believes that is how these blood droplets were created inside of the garage and that Michael had been hit in the head and was likely bleeding from either the mouth or the ear and was carried in that way, which then created those blood drops. Now, as I said, the blood leads to a collection of droplets and then it abruptly stops and there's no more blood dropped anywhere. And they didn't find any blood outside of the garage either. Philip Klein believes that this is due to a tarp or something else having been laid out and then Michael was placed onto it and then rolled up and taken away. 
So getting back to the police arriving on scene, they began looking around thinking that maybe this was a robbery situation that had occurred. And this area did have some known issues with people using methamphetamine and other various crimes. When they looked inside Michael's wallet, they found that it didn't have any cash inside of it. However, this wasn't that unusual and wasn't enough to cause suspicion, but they did note that Michael's driver's license was gone. They also were unable to locate his cell phone. The more investigators looked around, the more it didn't seem like a robbery scenario was all that plausible. Inside of Michael's garage, there was a ton of expensive tools, and all of that could easily be pawned if the person who did something had intended to rob Michael. Not to mention, inside of Michael's truck, there was $1,000 cash inside the center console, which apparently he usually always kept a large sum of cash in his truck. And one other thing that Philip Klein had mentioned was that inside of the workshop was also a very large sum of cash that did not appear to be disturbed in any kind of way. So that theory of a robbery gone wrong just doesn't seem all that plausible when you really analyze the scene. There's also the possibility that Michael had accidentally wounded himself, but none of the rags were disturbed inside the shop and the trail of blood led away from the sink, which you'd think if he had cut himself, he would have gone to the sink to try and clean himself up. Also, an accident like that wouldn't explain the bloody dowel rod, and if he did injure himself and was able to walk away well enough to get help, Michael would have taken his truck to the hospital, not whatever may have happened. So the accident scenario, once more, not that plausible. The police did dust for prints inside the workshop, and the only prints that were recovered all belonged to Michael. It wasn't long before more officers were on scene, and they began scouring the 10 acres of property that Becca and Michael lived on. The Hunt County Sheriff's Department had even requested the help of a helicopter that was equipped with thermal detection equipment in hopes of finding Michael on that property somewhere, but they found absolutely no sign of him. They also searched Lake Tawakini and surrounding areas because the location of their home was not far from there. Once more, no sign of Michael. At this point, investigators really didn't have much to go off of, so they started questioning those within the family to find out if Michael had any issues with anyone and how things were in the days leading up to his disappearance. But they quickly learned that there wasn't a person out there who didn't adore Michael, and that he was just overall this incredible person that was always willing to lend a helping hand. And that leading up to his disappearance, there was nothing strange or out of the ordinary. It was the following day on March 11th, police were able to obtain that security footage from the Walmart, and as I stated earlier, it did not appear like anyone followed Michael. They also questioned some of the other local businesses about perhaps Michael stopping in, and once more, they found nothing. On this day, they also brought in multiple bloodhounds to help them search the property, and they kept alerting in an area near a culvert on the property, which led to a large pond. This pond area was searched with dive teams on two separate occasions, but nothing was ever found in connection to Michael. 
And I have to wonder why his scent went that direction on the property. And the only logical conclusion that I could come up with is that maybe that was the area he had been in earlier that day working on cutting the firewood, or maybe he stopped by there to wash his hands off in the water again while working on the firewood. So everyone in the small town of Quinlan at this point had heard that Michael is missing, and investigators were working hard to piece together what exactly happened. Michael's phone continued to go to voicemail, which all of his family said was extremely unlike him, because he always kept his phone charged and in his pocket in case anyone needed to reach him or if they needed help. Michael's cell phone had last pinged near Lake Tawakini, and they extensively searched this lake the best that they could and didn't find Michael there either. On March 15, 2017, Michael's family created the Facebook group called Bring Papa Home in hopes to generate more public interest in this case and to also have a place to provide updates and hopefully generate new leads. I will have the Facebook group also linked in the description of this episode so you can go and join and just to show the family some support. It was when this Facebook group was created that they also announced that they were offering a $25,000 reward for anyone who had information that led to Michael's whereabouts. As the days passed and no answers on what had happened to Michael, the family began speculating that maybe Michael's youngest son, Justin, was somehow involved. According to an investigation discovery write-up on the case, Justin had apparently had a habit of calling his father and asking for money. And just a few months prior to Michael going missing, Michael decided it was time to cut him off and that Justin finally needed to just take care of himself. According to Michael's son-in-law, David, Justin would call and get belligerent with Michael and would make threats. Justin, however, was adamant he had no involvement in his father's disappearance, and even though there was tension between them, he wouldn't harm his father. They were also able to check his alibi for that day, and he had been at work all day when Michael had gone missing. When DNA testing of the blood found in the garage on both the floor and the dowel rod came back, it was confirmed to belong to Michael. But there is a ton of speculation on the fact that these blood drops were so perfectly circular, and some blood spatter experts believe that this entire crime scene was staged. But as I said earlier, Philip Klein, who is the PI working on this case, thinks that there's just no way this was staged, and that would seem almost too far-fetched, seeing how some of these experts think that someone had a vial of Michael's blood and placed them so perfectly. In my opinion, that seems like a whole lot of work to stage a crime scene to have a vial of blood on hand to do so. But as I said, there's lots of speculation that Michael himself even staged this to make it appear that something happened. But one thing I do find weird is that there was no blood spatter all over the place that would be consistent with someone who was hit in the head. And we know that wooden dowel had blood on it, so truly this whole scene is very odd and has people, myself included, asking so many questions. 
It wasn't long before investigators caught wind about Becca and Michael's marriage. And though many thought it was perfect on the outside, they learned that Becca Chambers had had an affair. Another thing that made investigators and others in the family suspicious was the fact that Becca had suspended Michael's cell phone 10 days after he disappeared. Not only that, but she removed Justin from the cell plan completely because he was still apparently on their plan. And while I do not think it's odd that she took Justin off at this time, I do find it odd that she suspended Michael's account. They had no idea where his cell phone was. It was not found in the workshop, which means that it had to have been with Michael or someone else took it. I feel like if this was my husband, I would have kept that line turned on in the instance that maybe he was able to use his cell service. And not only that, if the phone was ever turned on, those investigating his case would be able to track that cell phone ping, but they can't do that if the service has been suspended. And If I ever decided to cancel my husband's service, it would have likely have been years later, not 10 days. So this had raised a lot of red flags for people, as I'm sure it's raising a red flag for you hearing about it now. But Becca had an explanation on why she did it. She had said that she turned his cell service off because she needed to save money since she wasn't going to be receiving Michael's retirement money since he was gone. And while this seemed like a logical explanation, this just did not sit well with a lot of people. And then Becca goes and does something else. Five weeks after Michael went missing, Becca obtained a temporary death certificate for Michael so that she could sell his truck. It was said that because Michael was gone, she was then responsible for the truck payments, which she didn't want to pay with her own money. And since the truck was in Michael's name, she had to get a temporary death certificate so that she could get rid of the truck by selling it. This entire thing put a major bad taste in the mouths of Michael's children and his grown grandchildren. Though they had fears that something terrible happened to Michael, they were still fairly early into this investigation and they were trying to hold on to hope that he was out there alive somewhere. And once more, I hate to say what I would do in this situation, But I am so sentimental when it comes to things, I would have had the hardest time letting something like that go. Most men love their trucks, and it's their most prized possession. I just couldn't see myself selling something like that, but Becca, once more, didn't want to pay for it. A couple months after Michael vanished, the FBI was brought in to help begin working the case, and they had brought in a polygraph expert. The first polygraph was given to Justin, Michael's youngest son, who was known to have had recent issues with his father over money. Justin agreed without any kind of hesitation. Justin was given two separate polygraph tests and he passed both with no issues. And because his alibi checked out and he passed these polygraphs, he was officially marked off their potential suspect list. 
The following month, Becca was brought into the station for a polygraph test, which she also agreed to. But when she was being pressed about the affair she had during their marriage, she did not want to talk about it. Finally, she admitted to only one affair, but had stated that the relationship with this man had ended five months before Michael went missing. And she also said that she believed Michael knew about this affair, but he chose not to confront her about it. This news of an affair came as a complete shock and total slap in the face to the rest of the family. This was something that nobody would have expected and just caused the family to question things more. According to police, Becca passed her polygraph test as well. They were able to bring in her ex-lover as well for questioning, and he admitted to the affair, but he had a solid alibi for the day that Michael went missing. And at this point, authorities felt that Becca or anyone associated with her and her affair wasn't involved. But a lot of the family and those within the community were not so sold with Becca and her stories. And Philip Klein was able to dig up even more lovers that Becca had during their marriage. And not only that, but he was able to discover that Becca had communicated with one of her lovers on the actual day that Michael vanished. She spoke with this man twice in the morning and once during the time frame that authorities believed whatever happened to Michael took place, which was between noon and 3 p.m. on that day. And this communication with this man took place around 2 p.m. on that day. So truly smack dab in the middle of when Michael could have been attacked. Not only that, but she also spoke to this lover on the telephone the morning after Michael vanished at 5.30 a.m. When this man was approached by P.I. Philip Klein to talk about the affair with Becca, he completely denied everything and even denied speaking with Becca on that day. Clearly, this guy doesn't watch true crime shows and know that any communication via phones is going to be documented. So when Philip Klein showed this guy the proof that he was lying and that he did in fact speak with Becca on that day, he admitted it but denied any kind of involvement on Michael's disappearance. Now, all of this is really suspicious to me. Why try and lie about something like that if you're not involved in any kind of way? And granted, he may have been worried on how it looked, but it looks a whole lot worse, in my opinion, when you lie. And what is more interesting is Philip Klein states that there is actually no proof on where Becca was after 2 p.m. on that day because she had left work early. This was also around the same time that she had spoken with that boyfriend and her phone would go dark after this conversation for an hour and a half. But if she left work around 2 p.m. on that day, why did she text Michael's phone around 5 p.m. to let him know that she was off and headed home? Once more, there's a lot of questions here, and the only logical explanation for her leaving work and speaking with the lover at around 2 p.m. was because maybe they were planning to meet up for some time together. And what is frustrating about all of this is Becca refuses, absolutely refuses to work with Philip Klein, that PI that is investigating the disappearance of her husband. 
because Becca states that she already told everything that she knew to police. Why wouldn't you want to work closely with a very respected PI to help find your missing husband? It just does not sit well with me. Now, of course, to play devil's advocate, this could absolutely mean nothing. And maybe Becca just doesn't want to discuss those extramarital affairs because she doesn't want to further hurt the family with the truths of her infidelity. But the timing of her leaving work at 2 p.m., talking to the boyfriend around then, and the phone going dark at this point for an hour and a half is just very, very odd. Now, one thing I do want to discuss that stuck out to me in an interview that Philip Klein did with Lord and Arts on YouTube was that he had stated the neighbor that Becca searched the property with and was the one who was with her when she found that blood. And he was also the one that was the retired police chief. He said that when Becca attempted to open the door to the workshop and then she said it was locked, so she used her key, it almost appeared like she was faking it. Like the door wasn't really locked and that she really didn't actually unlock the door with the key. Which is weird and makes you wonder, if it wasn't locked, why would she pretend that it was? A few months after Michael went missing, his daughter, Susie, who was manning that Bring Papa Home Facebook page, received a message from a person claiming to know where her father was. The person making these claims then called Susie and told her over the phone that Becca and another man had murdered her father and placed his body on a property, which he provided her with the address. Susie instantly called Sheriff Meeks with this information and he told her that he wasn't sure the information was true because the person who called this information in was a convicted felon and that he likely was just trying to receive that $25,000 reward. But to completely rule out this property and the story, they went ahead and did a full search of the property and was unable to find any evidence to back up this man's claims. It was during the summer after Michael went missing that their son, Justin, went over to the house and started an argument with Becca, and apparently she called police and requested a protective order against her son. When asked what they were fighting about, she told police that Justin was livid about being cut off from the phone bill, but Justin later told his sister Susie that it wasn't about the phone at all, and that Justin had apparently gone to his parents' house to confront Becca about the tip Susie received and to ask her if she had any involvement in his father's disappearance. Now, allegedly, Justin did threaten his mother with words, and I'm not sure exactly what those words were, but she felt the need to call police. When Philip Klein mentioned this in that interview, he had stated that while, yes, Justin was mouthy and said things that he probably shouldn't have, he didn't feel like this exchange between the two warranted a protective order against her own son. It just seemed excessive to file this protection order just because he was questioning her involvement in his father and her husband's disappearance. On July 15th, Michael's family received yet another shock that had them once more questioning Becca's involvement. You remember that temporary death certificate I mentioned earlier? 
It was to be able to sell Michael's truck, and Becca assured Susie at that time that it was just temporary, and that it was just so that she could sell the truck to free up some funds to stay afloat, since she wasn't receiving Michael's retirement money. Well, on that day in July, they found out that that temporary death certificate was not so temporary after all. It was permanent and final. And this was done just two months after his disappearance. This is very unusual in these types of cases. I can't recall a case where someone is declared deceased so quickly. Usually the families hold out hope for years before they request a death certificate in hopes that their loved one will turn up somewhere. Now, I wanted to look into this because I felt like there was rules or laws or something out there when you can get a person declared dead. And according to SSA.gov, they presume a person is dead if he or she has been missing from home and has not been heard from for seven years or more. So clearly, just two months after he had gone missing is really early to have this have happened. This completely shook Michael's family once more, but what had them questioning her even more was the fact that because Michael was declared dead, Becca was given monthly payments from his $750,000 pension. Once more, authorities just felt like she was doing everything that she could to stay afloat, but the family wasn't pleased. Then, if the family didn't get enough blows, they were told that the police were beginning to look into the possibility that Michael staged the crime scene himself so that he could escape his life. And one thing that Michael's son-in-law David told police to kind of go with this theory is that he once had a conversation with Michael where he had stated it would be easy to disappear and to make it look like an accident. Apparently, this conversation took place when he and David were watching some sort of investigative show and that the comment didn't make him think that this was something Michael had considered, just more of an opinion on what he thinks someone could do to pull it off. Other members of the family say there's no way that Michael would run out on his family like that. And after seeing the videos of Michael with his grandkids and just how much he was filled with love, I don't see that as the most plausible scenario here. He had a fantastic life, minus the fact he was married to a woman who constantly had affairs, but despite that, he loved Becca a lot. He had great-grandchildren, and his home was always filled with so much love between all of his kids and his grandchildren and great-grandkids. Not to mention, if Michael had intended to run off to start a new life, why would he leave behind all of the cash that he had? You would think that he would need some sort of funds to get him to where he had intended to go. I just don't think that is what happened here. In October of that year, the Hunt County Police brought in cell phone experts to learn more about the exact route Michael had taken on that day. They found that earlier that day, Michael used the two-mile bridge to go into town, which is the bridge that is located over Lake Tawakadi, and that he had stopped off at what is considered like a lookout area where he could take in the surrounding scenery of the lake. The cell phone expert was able to determine that Michael was stopped off at this location for 10 to 15 minutes. 
At about 2.30 p.m., Michael's phone was pinged back at that very same location, but it was noted that in the data of his cell phone, it showed that it took Michael three hours to get back to this location and showed that his phone was traveling somewhere between 2 and 4.2 miles per hour. They also noted that when Michael got to this location, his phone went dead. Equipped with this new information, the sheriff's office was under the impression that Michael had to have been traveling to the bridge again by bicycle. Now, here's where things get weird for me once more. Authorities went to Michael's house and determined that a bike was missing. And I'm not sure what exactly made them determine this. I'm not sure if Becca said there was a bike that was missing or what other way they came to this conclusion. But for them, they said that one was missing, so Michael must have rode off on it. However, P.I. Philip Klein looked into this and he says in that interview he found absolutely zero proof that a bike was missing, let alone another bike having ever been in the garage. He did find one bike inside the garage hung up on a bike rack, but this bike appeared to have not been ridden for several years. The bike had a rusted chain, flat tires, and overall wasn't usable. But there was no sign of a second bike rack where a second bike could have been. And the neighbors had even said that they had never witnessed Michael ride a bike. And his children said that Michael had the worst knees and was often in pain due to arthritis. Biking was completely out of the picture for this 70-year-old grandpa, according to his children. And that bridge was almost 20 miles from where he lived. A 70-year-old man who wasn't an active biker with bad knees? I don't think so. Not to mention, Michael had to have been bleeding unless the scene was staged. None of the pieces add up here or remotely make sense to me and I cannot wait to hear your theories on all of this because this one is probably one of the oddest cases I've covered with so many WTF moments. Police were holding on to this theory that he staged the crime scene, hopped on a bike we aren't even sure existed, rode 20 miles with bad knees, and then jumped off the two-mile bridge, which might I add is only nine feet above the water and they say he committed suicide. But this had all taken place during the day. Surely there would have been a witness that could have came forward and said that they saw him riding his bike. There would have been witnesses that came forward and said they saw him on the bridge, or even jump off the bridge. But everything I found, nobody had said they saw him. And on top of that, this nine-foot jump into the water wouldn't have killed him. They had many different dive units, Texas Equisearch, and Sonar come out and scour the lake and found nothing of Michael and no bike. So where the hell did this bike go? I just do not think this is the right theory they should be going off of. And I think it's offensive that authorities are screaming this suicide theory when there's zero evidence that he committed suicide and zero witnesses. And surely, if he had jumped and killed himself, his body would have been washed up or found by now. But here we are, over five years later, and no body. 
P.I. Philip Klein fully believes that this was a homicide and completely disagrees with the sheriff's office theory of a suicide. And though he didn't point fingers in that interview he did with Lorden Arts, he can't fully rule out Becca when she refuses to cooperate with him. He also said that the fact that the bloodhounds ended at the end of Michael and Becca's driveway proves to him that Michael didn't just ride off on a bike. He was likely put into the trunk of a vehicle and driven away. Because had he been riding a bike, the dogs likely would have picked up on that scent. Of course, there's no proof either that Michael was even the one traveling with his phone that day back to the bridge. There's just way too many questions left unanswered, and I do not like the fact that the sheriff's office now just want to say suicide. I feel like saying that is the easy way out for them, but P.I. Philip Klein is determined to get to the bottom of this. At the time of his disappearance, Michael Chambers was 70 years old, standing at 6 foot 3 and weighed somewhere between 220 pounds to 230 pounds. Michael is a white male with gray hair, blue eyes, and he usually had a mustache and a goatee. He wears glasses with metal frames and the lenses that tent in the sunlight. Michael has a small scar on his upper lip, surgical scars on his right knee, and scars on both shoulders. If Michael is still out there today, he would now be 75 years old. If you or anyone you know has information, you can contact private investigator Philip Klein at 409-729-8798 or you can email philipkline at gt.twcbc.com. I will have his contact information in the description of this episode as well. And if you submit info to Philip Klein, you're also asked to contact the Hunt County Sheriff's Office at 903-453-6800. If you wish to stay anonymous with information, you can contact the Hunt County Crime Stoppers at 903-457-2929. Crimeaholics, that is all for this week's Missing Monday. As I stated earlier, make sure that you're in our private Facebook group and you can find it by searching Crimeaholics Podcast Discussion Group. In there, we share all pictures and information pertaining to the cases that we cover, and we also encourage all of our members to share all things true crime. Also, make sure you follow us on Instagram at crimeaholics.podcast. And if you'd like more true crime content, you can follow me on TikTok at crimeaholics.podcast. And lastly, if you wish to follow myself personally, you can find me on Instagram at crimeaholly. Crimeaholics, that is all for now. Until next time, be aware and take care. (music) 